Will you please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4. And we're going to be looking at several verses there. So we want you to have a Bible to follow along. These guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get you one of those that's marked at Ephesians 4. You can keep that Bible. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. Ephesians 4. What do you want to be when you grow up? It's a question that we ask kids from an early age, and they're often ready to give an answer. Policeman or fireman, musician, an athlete, a mom. But what you want to be is much less important than who you want to be. Who that child grows up to be like is much more important than what he or she will do. When we go from what we want to do to who it is we want to be, it's a much more serious issue. For example, if I not only want to be an athlete, but I want to be like my favorite athlete, then it's, of course, important that that favorite athlete be a good role model. Now, before Charles Barkley was an NBA commentator, he was a great NBA player, some of you will remember. And you may also remember he was a bit of a jerk. When asked whether he was being a good role model to the kids who look up to him, Barkley deflected by trying to deny that he's anyone's role model, saying that parents should be role models for their kids. Well, parents should be kids' role models, that's true. But one, that doesn't mean they don't have other competing role models, and Charles, you were one of them. And second, he conveniently forgot that half of the kids in the African-American community don't have a father for a role model. So they're all the more likely to look to guys like Barkley to fill that void. Who it is you want to be is much more important than what you want to be. Who you want to be like is much more important than what it is you want to do. Look at chapter 4 then and verse 24. It says, put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. And then chapter 5 and verse 1 says, follow God's example. So we're told in chapter 4 and verse 24 to be like God, and we're told in chapter 5 and verse 1 to follow God's example. Now, today is the last message in our mini-series that we've titled, How to Show Your Faith. And as we're going to see in a moment, the passage we're considering this morning covers the final two of the six characteristics of a Christian that are given in chapters 4 and at the beginning of chapter and beginning of chapter 5. We're going to focus today on the fifth of those six. And the sixth is just going to get a brief explanation for reasons that I'll explain toward the end of the message. Now, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, as I've reminded you in the weeks of this short series, those first three of the six chapters of Ephesians provide an awesome description of all that God had done to give us spiritual life and to bring us into his family. And those who belong to Jesus Christ now have a new identity in him. And chapters 4 through 6 tell us how we should live in light of that new identity. So when you come to chapter 4, 
it makes a transition from describing all that's been done for us now to, in response, what we should do. So verse 1 of chapter 4 says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. When it says worthy, it doesn't mean that you've kind of worked your way up to God owing you now something, or now you're good enough, but rather that word is a word that means consistent. You could translate that, live a life that's consistent with the calling that you've received. And then verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 tell us about the necessity of unity in the lives of those who have been changed by Jesus because He is unified with the Father and the Spirit. And then verses 17 to 24 of that chapter is about the necessity of holiness in the lives of those who are changed by Jesus. So verses 22 and 24 of chapter 4 tell us to put off the old self and put on the new self to show this new, this different, this holy life that we've been given. And I've reminded you that those terms, put off and put on, were used in New Testament times of changing clothes, taking off one set of clothing and exchanging it with another. Verse 24 of chapter 4 says, This new you, this new me, is, as we've seen, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So all of that then should raise the question, so specifically, what does this new you, this new me, look like? We've seen in weeks past that if we're going to be successful in our pursuit of being like God, of being like Christ, it's going to mean that we dress accordingly. For a Christian to dress for success, so to speak, it means, according to this passage, that we put off attitudes and words and actions that were characteristic of the old life, and we put on thoughts and speech and behavior that are consistent with the new life. Now, I have that in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to look at it. And it lists the six things that dressing for success looks like from Ephesians 4, 25 through chapter 5 and verse 4. You see there at the top. Verse 25, we saw a few weeks ago, tells us the new you wears truth. In verses 26 and 27 of chapter 4, the new you wears peace. In verse 28, the new you wears generosity. Last week we saw from verses 29 and 30, the new you wears grace. In particular, grace in the way we speak to and about others. And then today, from chapter 4 and verse 31 through chapter 5 and verse 2, we're going to see the new you wears love. And then there are two additional verses in this list of six things that describe the Christian's wardrobe. And that one tells us the new you puts on purity. Today we're going to look at the fact that the new us, our new identity in Christ, is one that's to be characterized by love. Let's ask God to help us as we see what that means. Father, we thank you for letting us be here. We thank you for giving us the health, for giving us the breath, for giving us the freedom, for giving us the desire to be with your people, to be in your presence, to praise you and learn of you. Lord, we need your aid, as always, and we ask your help as we open your word that we can put aside the cares with which we came into this building and focus our attention on you and your truth and its application to us. 
We ask you, Lord, to grant us minds that are attentive to what you say so that we can leave here better equipped to bring glory to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The new you wears love. And verse 31 of chapter 4 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, elsewhere in your Bible, in particular in Colossians chapter 3, we have similar commands to those that I've just read. Commands to display qualities like kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Here's what Colossians chapter 3 says. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Then it goes on to say, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Then the next verse says, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So there in that passage, you have a, a number of virtues, compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness. But then the last verse in that passage says, what binds them all together is love. That is, love is the common denominator with which each of these virtues that are listed is to, is to be characterized by. It's the common denominator for each of them. These are all displayed or not displayed in relationships with others. And what is to motivate every one of them? Compassion, kindness, forgiveness, humility, gentleness, patience. What's to motivate all of them is love. And you've heard me many times give a working definition of biblical love. It's doing what is in the best interest of another. So what is to animate, motivate you and me to have these kinds of virtues in our lives in relationship to one another is this desire to do what is in the best interest of others. So I'm to demonstrate all of those characteristics because I love. And I'm to love for this reason. 1 John 4 says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. It's in God's nature to love, that is to give of himself for the benefit of others. And that's why I say in your outline that if the new you is to wear love, we love by imitation. We love by imitation. And we see that in chapter 5. Verses 1 and and 2, where we're told to follow God's example. Now, these two verses, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that begin this chapter are connected to the end of the previous chapter. Now, remember, when the Bible was first written, letters like Ephesians, a letter to the church at Ephesus, did not have chapter and verse markings in them. 
So verses 1 and 2 are connected to the end of chapter 4. They're connected a couple of ways. They're connected grammatically. You see in verse 1 of chapter 5 the word therefore. So follow God's example, therefore. But they're also connected by structure. If you've been with us for the earlier messages in this series, you might remember I've said several times that each of the six sections that describe the Christian's new spiritual wardrobe contain a command about what we should do, but also a command about what we should avoid, and then also a reason for it. And verses 1-2 of chapter 5 are the reason for what is said in chapter 4 and verse 31. They're the reason that you should get rid of all of the stuff that's listed there. And they're also the reason for the for why we should do the things that are listed in verse 32 of chapter 4. Things like be kind and compassionate and forgiving. Now, the first point in your outline, we love by imitation, is from chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 for this reason. The reason I'm starting there rather than the the end of chapter 4. I'm starting by looking at the reason that we should put off bitterness and rage and anger because I want to avoid giving the impression that you and I simply decide to change things. Get rid of, in chapter 4 and verse 31, can be misunderstood that way. If we just read that get rid of, then you could understand that as just stop doing what you've been doing. But hear this, friends, and it's important. We do not change unless we have a compelling reason to change. And it's chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 that tell us why we should and why we can change. It is indeed the case, as chapter 4 and verse 31 says, we are to get rid of certain attitudes and words and actions, and we are to display other attitudes and words and actions. But there's a compelling reason for that. The reason is because we were made to be like God, and we're being remade to be like God. And that's why chapter 5 and verse 1 says, follow God's example. Do the things that are commanded in chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, because the things you're to put off are inconsistent with what God's like. And the things that you're to put on are precisely what God is like. Now, the word that's translated example in chapter 5 and verse 1 is a Greek word from which we get our English word mimic. So follow God's example, uh, be imitators of God, as some translations say. You could translate that, mimic God. We're to copy, mimic the character of God. Because chapter 4 and verse 24 says we're being recreated to be like God. We were made originally in the image of God, but sin has marred that image, and God is now remaking His image in us through Jesus. But for that image to be displayed, we obey the commands that are given at the end of chapter 4. So we are to love because love binds all of the other virtues together. It's the motivation for every last one of them in our relationships with each other. And we love because God is love and we were made to mimic God, to image God, to reflect Him back to Him and in His world. And I say in your outline, we love by imitation. And we love by imitation because God is our Father. God is our Father. 
Children often want to be like their parents. And even if they don't want to be, as the saying goes, the apple does not far, fall far from the tree. So they're like their parents whether they want to be or not. You know, many people have had the experience of looking in the mirror and going, I've become just like, oh no. That great theologian Harry Chapin was right in his song, The Cat's in the Cradle, I think his only song. Is that his only song? And it had the refrain coming from the mouth of a son, you know I'm going to be like him. One day I'm going to be like him. Back many years ago when Annie was a little girl, she was thinking about marriage. And she said to me, Daddy, will you help me find somebody like you? How sweet is that? She has since withdrawn that request. (laughs) Nevertheless, it was good while it lasted. You see, if we're children of the Father... We want to be like him. The end of chapter 1 in Ephesians. In fact, if you'll just hold your finger here and go back to chapter 1. The end of verse 4 in chapter 1 says, In love, God, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to sonship. And then chapter 2 and verse 2 says, You used to live like Quote, those who are disobedient. And that phrase, those who are disobedient, is literally like the sons of disobedience. So you were predestined to be adopted, and we were predestined to be adopted into God's family. But prior to that actually happening in time, we were part of the sons and daughters of disobedience. And then verse 3 of chapter 2 says we were the objects of wrath. And that phrase, objects of wrath, is literally, in Greek, children of wrath. So we were sons and daughters of disobedience. We were children of wrath. Clearly then, we were at one time outside the family of God, and He was not our Father. And as a result, we displayed the characteristics of our unspiritual family. Chapter 2 and verse 19 says, That as a result of the work that God has done, going back to eternity past and then in time. Chapter 2 and verse 19 says, we are now members of God's household. So what made the difference? We were all at one time sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath. But now we're members of God's household and God is our father. What made the difference? That's chapter 2 and verse 5. Because in between, chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us we were born into a new family. God made us alive. The Bible tells us that we have been given new birth into a new family. Famously, John chapter 1 says this. To all who received him, Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. And as a result of being born into God's family and adopted into God's family, we now have the spiritual nature of God. 
which then is to be reflected in the way we live. Second Peter 1 says you participate in the divine nature. And so now what was quite unnatural for us comes to us naturally. It's natural now, should be for the Christian, to reflect the nature of our Father. And so you've got all of these virtues, all of these virtues that have binding them together as the common denominator, love. And why do we love? First John says, we love because he first loved us. We love by imitation. We're imitating. We're mimicking. We are copying. We are reflecting the God who made us in his image and is remaking us in that image. We love by imitation because God is our father. And I say in your outline, we love because Christ is our brother. We love because God's our father. We're in his family. But we also love because Christ is our brother. Verse 2 of chapter 5. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in this context of following God's example and showing in our lives the character qualities that are characteristic of God himself, we're told here in verse 2, walk, live in the way of, of love. And our prime example of that is Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, I say here, Christ is our brother. Why? Because the context is us in the family of God, mimicking, copying our our father. And further, the writer of Hebrews says this. The one who makes men holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy, that is us, notice this, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers and sisters. (laughs) We're in the same family with Jesus. Just let that sink in. And that's why when the Bible says things like we are co-heirs with Christ. See, the only way the promises that God has given to us as his children could not come to pass is if somehow God the Father were able to disown his son. And since he can't do that, then that won't happen with us. We are of the same family. We're in the same family with Jesus. We have the same father as Jesus. But as a result of that, we're to display the loving character of our father as Jesus, our brother, did. So the Expositor's Bible Commentary says this, We, like Christ, are to give ourselves up to love. Such self-giving for others is pleasing to God. As with Christ, so with us. Self-sacrificial love is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Sacrificial love for others becomes a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. God is love, and the life that is like the life of God will be a life of love. If love is the essence of God's nature, It's the essential of Christian character. The words, a couple of the words that are used in verse 2, offering and sacrifice, those are words of worship. Giving of oneself for the sake of others is an acceptable sacrifice of worship before God because it pleases him and it pleases him because it's characteristic of him. But hear this, friends. 
failure to love others is not only displeasing to God, it makes unacceptable our other acts of worship. Let me say that again. Failure to love others is not only displeasing to God, it makes unacceptable our other acts of worship. That is, you can sing, I can sing, we can give and we can pray and we can fellowship. But if we do not love our brother, God doesn't want it. You say, really? Really? I'm going to show you from Scripture in just a moment. But what that means, if it's true, is that in the nearly hour that we've been here, some of us have not only wasted our time and, more importantly, God's, but it's been an affront to God. To say, here I am to worship. Here I am singing praise to you, but the person sitting next to me, my spouse, I'm estranged from. Or that there are other people within my home against whom I have ought and I refuse to get it straight. The worship then is a charade. Make no mistake. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, Jesus says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Next Sunday is communion. Communion is a word that comes from that Greek word many of you are familiar with, koinonia. Partnership, participation, fellowship. It refers to what we have in common, our unity in Christ. When we observe communion, one of the very important things that we're celebrating is our membership in the body of Christ, that we are one in Christ. But let a man or woman examine himself, says 1 Corinthians 11. I'll send an email to everybody on our email list this week, as I have for a few years now, before communion. And I will remind you of what God says, what communion is, and how God takes very seriously the unity of the body. And I implore you, friends, don't do next week what many of you have done this week. Come into the presence of the Lord and with his people to worship him, but be at odds with others. We might say things like, you know, I'd give my life for you. Verse 2 talks about sacrifice. We know the ultimate sacrifice that Christ gave for us. I'd give my life for you. (laughs) If only I could admit I'm wrong about something. You see, to say that I would sacrifice, I would give give up for you and be willing to even give up my pride to admit that I'm wrong? Or I can't seek or grant forgiveness? I can't tell you I love you? And sometimes I hear, particularly from guys, you know, I'm just not good at expressing myself. Oh, yikes. You know, absent a physical disability, people express themselves when they want to. And guys who say, you know, I'm just not good at expressing myself, can't talk about my feelings. Hey, those same guys express their feelings about their boss. 
Those same guys expressed their feelings about the Tigers, about President Obama. <laughs> guys, we've got to stop using that excuse, I can't express myself. You know how to express yourself. And God commands you to express yourself in love, not only with your words, but with your actions. And we say things like, he has a, a rough time concentrating or focusing. But if he needs money, he can focus like a laser. If he's with his friends, he can talk and laugh and cut up. Listen, the limitation is not physical or mental, it's spiritual. Because I don't want to have my flaws exposed. Because I can't subdue my pride and admit I might be wrong, or even that I just don't know everything. But Christians are willing to sacrifice what is important to them for the good of others. And when we do that, we love. And when we love, we imitate God because God is love. We love by imitation. I say in your outline as well. We love by demonstration. So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 give us the reason that we should do the things at the end of chapter 4 and avoid the things that are listed in chapter 4. So here in, in chapter 5, it's why we do it. We do it because we're imitating God. But now at the end of chapter 4, we demonstrate that we truly love in what we avoid and in what we do. So let me ask you, is what you want most to be like God, to be like Christ? If so, friends, it will show up in our relationships and whether or not we love one another. Now, we'd all agree, I, I trust, that simply because we come to church does not necessarily mean that we do so because we want to be like Christ. We could come for all sorts of reasons, out of habit, my spouse makes me, the kids need to be there, and so I have to bring them, I like the people, I like the bagels. So if I say I want to be like Christ, but I'm not actively engaged in comparing my character to his and seeking to change in the many, many areas that I fall short. If I'm not doing that, then I don't mean it when I say I want to be like Christ. So who do you want to be like? Now we're in church, and so you know the right answer is God, Christ. But ask yourself truly, do I want to be like Christ? Is he really my role model? And you see, friends, the assumption in our passage today is that, that we indeed want this because of what chapters 1 through 3 say. That we have actually been changed, we've actually been moved from children of wrath and sons and daughters of disobedience. And we've been adopted and born into God's family. We now have His nature. So the assumption is the deepest desire of our hearts has been changed so that our highest aspiration now is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And if all of that is true for us, then we will love, which means doing what's in the best interest of others. I say in your outline, we'll demonstrate this then by reflecting all that is loving. We reflect all that is loving. Verse 32 tells us what we should reflect as we copy, mimic, image God. Chapter 4 and verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The word translated kind, the Greek word, sounds like the name Christ. 
So Christians in the, in the first century saw its peculiar appropriateness to describing them, describing Christians. But kindness in the Bible is not just being polite. God is kind even to those who are ungrateful and wicked. So Luke 6, Jesus said this, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Notice that family relationship, sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Titus 3 tells us we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now notice, he was kind to us even when we were like that. (laughs) Hated and hating. God was kind to us. Let me just stop. You know, I said earlier, you came in here, you praised Jesus, we're worshiping, but I don't like the person sitting next to me or somebody across the room. And we're estranged from each other. So so what does this example mean for you in that? Even if your spouse is horrible, and let's just assume they are, and you're trying to live for Jesus, God was kind to you. God reached out to you, even when you were a hater and you were hated, even when you were ungrateful and wicked. Compassionate in verse 32 means to be tender-hearted toward, toward others, especially in their struggles. When verse 32 says forgiving each other, the word is literally acting in grace towards one another, as God in Christ has acted in grace towards us. Now you pile all that up, being kind to one another, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. And Jesus gives us the apex of all of that and how love ought to manifest itself in our relationships, in forgiveness. When he gives in the model prayer, the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he gives six petitions. May your name be holy, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come is the second one. Your will be done is the third one. But then... He says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You remember that? But then he gives a sixth petition. And then after the model prayer is done, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14, he comes back to that fifth of the six petitions. Forgiveness. And here's what Jesus says. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's how important this issue of reconciled relationships is to God. If a person is unwilling to forgive another sinner then that's a person who does not recognize the sin that they have had forgiven by God. It's a demonstration that they're not saved. That's why Jesus says, your father won't forgive you. We love by demonstration, reflecting all that is loving, and I say in your outline, we reject all that is unloving. Verse 31 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. You see, friends, it's not just stop doing, but we want to stop doing. And we can stop doing because we've been made new. But the command to get rid of is to to prod us, to do what we want to do and ought to do. And it says, get rid of all, and then lists a number of sinful attitudes and actions. That is, every vestige, whenever and however it rears its head. So quickly, I'm just going to go through, in verse 31, some of the things that are listed here. Bitterness. Bitterness harbors resentment. It keeps a record of wrongs. And it's contrary to the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that says love keeps no record of wrongs. So many times in our marriages or our relationships with one another, we have long memories that just sort of build up over time. (laughs) I remember years ago I was in a, a Christian softball league. I hesitated on the Christian part uh, there. You guys have seen some of the, Some of you guys participated in these Christian softball leagues. Uh, unfortunately, we played every Saturday once a week, and unfortunately, we had the same umpire every week. And for the first couple of games, hope springs eternal. Everybody loves each other. We love the other players. We love the umpire. Until you're a few games into the season and he's made some calls you didn't like. And so you grouse about that. And then you're about the fifth game into the season. You're not just grousing under your breath. You're yelling at him. And you get to about the tenth or twelfth game of the season. And there's outright animus between you and him. And that's that's the way it is in many of our relationships. It's, we've allowed it to build up over time such that there is a, a bitterness, a plaque on your soul that hardens. Some of you retired couples can't stand each other. And you're going to take communion next week? There's bitterness. Rage. That is the stuff that is simmering comes out. It it bursts out. Anger is a slow burn. And hear this, that outburst always comes from premeditation of some sort. I've just been brooding on it, just slowly burning. Brawling, in verse 31, is literally shouting. Slander is to abuse with our words. And the source of all of this is the old self that we were to put off in verse 22. And it's all called, in verse 31, malice. So hear this, there is no such thing as an absence of malice when we do this stuff. And the verse tells us, get rid of all forms of it. So friend, I I have to stop very shortly here because of time. But I beg you as your pastor, as your brother, as your friend, to heed what our God says about imitating Him and we cannot imitate Him if we are content with broken relationships. So identify how it is you do this. Depending on your personality, you might do it, we do it different ways. 
how do I do it and in what circumstances do I do it and to whom do I do it? And then label it biblically and call it what it is. That's what confession is. To say the same thing. Confess to God and to those to whom you do it. Our take-home truth is this. By their love, Christians show the difference that Christ has made. Now, there are six of these articles of clothing that we're to put on. And the sixth one is the new you puts on purity. But... I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal with that other than to read verses three and four and make a few comments about it. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But look at chapter five, verse three. But among you, there must not even, not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. The new you puts on purity. And this is in keeping with what the Bible says in a number of places. One of them is 1 Thessalonians 4 that says this. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. That word sanctified is related to our word for holy. You could translate that. It's God's will that you be holy. It's God's will that you be different than the rest of the world. But then that verse goes on to say this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, notice the word sanctified. If you can see it there, after that, the translators have have a colon. And that colon is there because it's God's will that you should be made holy, colon. And here's what that looks like. That's what the colon's saying. Here's one of the things it means for you to be holy. That you should avoid sexual immorality. And verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5 in Ephesians are recounting what the Bible says in numerous places. Now, I'm not dealing with this. We're almost done. And the reason I'm not is because, men, you saw in your program in the middle section that a week from Friday, we have a seminar, a purity seminar. It's going to be Friday evening. It's going to be Saturday morning. We have a group coming in from Kentucky. We are... We are paying them to to come in and to make this presentation. Pure Life Ministries is going to be here, not this coming weekend, but the weekend after that. Two weekends, Friday night, Saturday morning. Men, I encourage you to be here for that. If you're not out of town, then be here for that. Ladies, I encourage you to urge your men to be here for that. They need it. We need it. Now, ladies, as I say, I encourage your men to attend, but that seminar is not for you. So I just want to direct your attention, ladies, to a couple of words in verses 3 and 4. One is greed in verse 3. That is coveting. And then at the end of verse 4, thankfulness. And I would just say this to my sisters. Discontentment is a common struggle For you ladies. And so you desire, so you covet something else or even someone else. And you escape in chat rooms, in romance novels, so on. And the issue for you ladies is the same as it is for we men. What do I want? No, who do I want? And if the answer is, ultimately, I want God, 
and I want Christ, then that's an evidence that I truly am changed as chapters 1 through 3 describe in Ephesians. And so I end as I began. Who do you want to be like? Men and women. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness in meeting with us and caring about us as your people enough to draw us back to yourself when we wander. Lord, I identify with the songwriter who says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And my brothers and sisters here identify with that as well. Those of us who have your Holy Spirit, this resonates with us. And so, Lord, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for this conviction. Thank you for loving us enough to draw us back. And I pray, Lord, for any who have played church and played Christian, but their home lives are a wreck, their relationships are a wreck, they're content to go on day by day, some year by year with broken relationships even in their homes. I pray, Lord, that your conviction would come upon them and that they would see this is not characteristic of the new life that we are to have in Christ. Perhaps they are not born again. So, Holy Spirit, we ask you to give them new life and to start your good work in them. Help us, Lord, this week in the spheres to which you have called us to serve you, to put these things into practice so that we reflect you back to you and bring you glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.